Samuel shared with me this morning that um, there had been another shooting in Louisiana. Six policemen were shot and three were killed. So we're going to pray in light of that. Join me. Father, we see how desperately we need your word. Not just because these evil things happen, but no less because evil things happen. And we need your truth to guide our lives, to guard our hearts, to give us the reality of how we have hope in the midst of so much wickedness, so much chaos, so much devastation. We pray, Father. I'd love to find out that this was wrong and, and this didn't really happen but it's reported that it happened. So we, we pray, Father, for the families and who were impacted, Father, by the shootings, the community that was impacted by the shootings. We ask, Father, for your gospel of your son to be very real to the people, to have hope and the loss of life and the craziness of what continues to take place. Grant strength, Father, to those who are impacted, to us as a nation, to the community, Father, particularly in in New Orleans, in Louisiana. Help me, Father, this morning to accurately and clearly and helpfully explain and teach your word. Your word is the source of truth because it is your truth. It is you speaking to us. We hear from you this morning. May, May this go way beyond my feeble efforts to, to teach your word. May, it, may you, through your spirit, speak to us and change us, cause us to grow in faith, hope, and love in Christ as a result of our time together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So question I have is, why do we make such a priority of teaching the word of God when we gather together? What is at stake in our efforts to ensure we are teaching what God's word says about what we are to believe and how we are to live? What's at stake? Why don't we just provide fun, wholesome activities, some helpful service projects, and give you some inspiring talks about how you can be a better you? Why are we so committed to teaching and exhorting from God's word? Well, it's because it's what we do. Do we need more reason than that? There's actually better reasons than that. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, as we continue our journey through 1 Timothy. So I'll read the text for you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus, in Turkey, which is another problematic place of the world today. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things and immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. These are the words of the living God. So what things is Paul saying Timothy has to keep commanding and teaching? He says command and teach these things. So we kind of picked it up where we left off last week, and what Paul had been saying was is that Timothy is to keep teaching gospel-centered truth for training in godliness. Paul said at the end of chapter 3 that godliness is not a function of human spiritual or religious efforts. Rather, it comes through the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what he said godliness is, is grounded in, founded in. Jesus Christ proclaimed and believed. So you hear that message of Christ, you believe it, you are on to godliness. God is working that in your life. In contrast to this, Paul said in the first part of chapter 4, a few verses back, that some had departed from the faith, devoting themselves to doctrines of demons. What were these demonic teachings? Well, that you can reach God by denying yourself good things God has created, like certain foods and marriage. You say, wow, that's a demonic teaching? Well, it was because what they were saying is that you don't put your trust in Christ alone. You put your trust in things you can do, strict rules that are arbitrary, that our, that our special group is, is uh, setting up for you to be more godly. And so that's demonic teaching. If it siphons you off from faith in Christ, it's demonic. It doesn't have to be weird and freaky. The reason he called these doctrines of demons then is because it, it takes off away from faith in Christ. So Paul is calling Timothy to expose the false teaching and to train himself and the church for gospel-centered godliness. He said we labor and strive to do this because we set our hope in the living God. That's what he said in, in verse 10, right before our passage. The reason that we know it's worth working for, striving and laboring to get God's truth to you, is because God saves. He's a living God. He's the Savior of all who believe. God is the Savior of believers so we, we work hard to teach faith in Christ as the way of godliness. We, we know that God is at work to save through our teaching of the word. So it's not a vain, human-oriented thing we do solely. It's, it's God at work in, in our midst through his word. Teaching truth is not the only function of the church. But as Paul says in, in verse 15 of chapter 3, the church is God's household, the pillar and support of the truth. Teaching Christ-focused, gospel-centered truth is of central importance for the church. So Paul encourages Timothy that there is no plan B for, uh, for keeping the church healthy. Keep commanding and teaching the truth that trains people for godliness, he says. Now, in our culture, we don't like to be commanded. Like We hear that word, and, and we don't immediately have a positive association with command. You hear command, hey, who are you to tell me what to do? But unfortunately, Jesus said, the way that you become my disciple is that you are learning to do everything that I have commanded you to do. So we live by commands of Jesus. And Jesus isn't personally coming down to tell us his commands. He, he gives it to us in his word, and then those of us who teach tell it to you, and, and you read it for yourself in scriptures. So uh, we, we, we follow Jesus' commands. Because God's word has authority to command us what to do, what not to do, what to believe or not. Those who teach God's word have the authority to command what God's word commands. And that's not based on our authority. Much less are we talking about being authoritarian or demanding things on our own authority. But um, we have God's authoritative word. And what he says in verse 12 
is let no one despise you for your youth. So Timothy was a young guy. Uh, most estimate that Timothy was uh, in his 30s, maybe as old as 40. Why might Paul bring up the issue of Timothy's youth? Well, there are older men and women in the congregation, and uh, it says that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, there are older and, and men and women, and they may not be uh, liking Timothy to have authority over them. And Timothy's present assignment has him on heresy extermination, and so he's doing a lot of commanding. A lot of commanding. So now, I'm still younger than some of you, but probably if you're going to despise me for something, you're not going to despise me for my youth. I wish you would despise me for that, but it's probably not where most of you are at in terms of your despising um, levels. So you can, re- you can despise Greg. And you can really despise Matt. But they're going to pull this verse at you and say, hey, don't despise me. So you're kind of stuck. Older believers might have not appreciated Timothy telling them what to do or not do. So Timothy needed to uh, earn or to give them reason to not despise him for being younger. So uh, it's not as if it's a matter of age, of ego or who's boss, like I'm in charge here and this is how it's going to be. That's not what Paul has in mind when he tells him not to let anyone despise him for his youth. Rather, he needed to earn the respect of the church by setting a good example, pattern, or model for them to follow of godly Christian character. Talking to Timothy, not just for himself, but for all the believers. So Paul lists five ways that Timothy can set a good example for the church. And what he says is you set an example, first of all, in speech. So... That includes Timothy's teaching for sure, but he's really talking about everyday speech, your everyday talk. What is in our hearts is revealed by our speech. Jesus said that. Whatever is in your heart comes out of your mouth. What does your everyday speech reveal about your heart? Good test. Does it give any clues that you have Jesus in your life at all? Does it give any hint that you value Jesus above everything else? Do your words build up others and encourage them in godliness? So what's in your heart is important, and and Timothy can set the example for that. We can set the example for that for one another. Uh, Timothy is to be an example in his conduct, that is, in his overall daily behavior. They should be able to follow Timothy's example for living out the faith in their daily lives. This is why Paul was so insistent on training for godliness. That's what he talked a lot about in the earlier passages we saw last week. Be trained for godliness. Godliness doesn't just happen. It comes through training, constant training in the word of God. And so it it should influence your conduct in everyday details of life. He said he's to be an example of love. So that means he's to be self-sacrificing, spending his life for others, showing compassion and care. Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1 that their very goal, the main goal that they were after and what they were teaching was love. And the false teachers weren't teaching that. So he says, "We're, we're all about learning to love as Christ loved us. He's to model faith or faithfulness. Either way it can be translated. He's to model trust in God, faith in his word. He is to be an example of faithfulness to God and his word. It is required of a steward that he, sh- he should be found faithful. So if you're a steward of God's word, you're, you're entrusted with God's word, you'd be found faithful. 
be found trustworthy. That means you can count on him or her to be true to God and his word. And also he's, he's to be an example of purity. Now, this means purity of life in general, but it especially includes sexual purity. There are too many stories of congregations that have been ruined by uh, leaders who have fallen into sexual immorality. Not, not just leaders, but certainly leaders make a big impact when they, when they fail in this regard. There's supposed to be not even a hint of sexual impurity. Not even a hint. Or of a compromising marriage if the leader is married. I've shared this before, but one of my, my worst experiences in, in ministry was when a fellow staff member um, was pursuing another woman that was not his wife. Not here, in another city. When many people questioned him, as, as it was evident he was spending a lot of time alone with the other woman, he rejected them and, and he said, You're just, this is just gossip. And the elders um, set up an accountability system for him to, to keep him accountable for what he was doing, and he, he left, he resigned, and he uh, left his wife and married the other woman. One of the worst things I ever went through because it was so many people were damaged, so many people were hurt. The church was betrayed by by uh, this individual. So you can imagine how devastating this was to many in our church. False teaching inevitably involves false li- living, so you overcome it with teaching of godliness and living in godliness. Paul said in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So Paul is planning to come help Timothy out, to see him in Ephesus, in Turkey. So what should Timothy be engaged in until Paul gets there? He says, Keep the Scripture central. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation and the teaching. Continually give yourself to these uses of Scripture. All of these should be present in gatherings of the church. So reading Practical encouragement that the word can include a warning, consolation, comfort, uh, along with teaching, which is explaining the meaning of the text. So this practice of reading scripture publicly followed the exhortation and, and teaching was, was carried over from the synagogue practice, what they did in the synagogues before Christ came. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, when he was in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath, uh, they gave him the scroll of Isaiah because PowerPoint was down that day. So they said, here, take the scroll and read from it. So he did. And <clears throat> he, he began to comment on it, and at first they loved it. But when Jesus got into the exhortation and teaching aspect, he began exposing their unbelief. Then they were filled with wrath. So they, they went from loving it to hating it. And they, they ran him out of town and were going to throw him off a cliff. That's how you know when you've been preaching a good sermon. <laughs> Thankfully, there's not a real nearby cliff. But you can come up with something more creative than that. Keeping the ministry of the Word of God central is the way to expose and drive out false teaching. It forms and shapes the church, strengthening and purifying her in godliness. Harvest will endure and flourish as a church as long as we keep devoting ourselves to public reading of Scripture, to exhorting from the Word of God, and teaching the Word of God. You say, well, it can't be that simple. There's got to be more to it than that. Well, to be sure, there's more to it than to 
to doing church, to, to having a church be thriving than just teaching and reading the Word of God. But it's non-negotiable priority for the church. It's her life-sustaining food. It's like life is not just about eating food. Sorry. But you can't live without eating food. So the Word of God is the life-sustaining food for the church. And in verse 14, uh, Timothy is, is he neglecting his gift? Because Paul says, do not neglect the gift you have. So was Timothy neglecting or being tempted to neglect his gift? Paul's referring to the spiritual gift, which uh, all of us receive. If you're in Christ, you receive a, at least one spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift for ministry. And so certainly uh, Timothy's gift was probably included teaching, if, if nothing else. And it does seem that Timothy needed occasional reminding and encouragement to use his gift. In 2 Timothy, so the next letter Paul wrote Timothy, he had to tell him again, hey, fan into flame the gift that's within you. So Timothy tended to, to, to wind down or to get too timid or to, to, to be, um, shrink back into not exercising his gift. It was hard. Hardships he was facing, so he probably was tempted under the hardships and challenges of the ministry to hold back or even to quit. So Paul is saying to Timothy, you have received a gift from God to empower you for, for the work. Don't neglect it. Keep serving. Don't give up. And God, Paul said that God had confirmed it through prophecy and, and elders confirmed it by the laying on of hands that he had this gift. So and you each have a gift. Are you using your gift? You, you've got it, so don't neglect using your gift for serving the Lord. Paul continues on in verse 15. He, he exhorts Timothy to continually practice these things. What things? Well, stopping those who are teaching false doctrine. He has quite a list of things he's got to do. Appoint qualified servant leaders. Train and be trained in words of faith and good doctrine. Have nothing to do with ungodly, useless myths that were being passed around. Uh, train yourself for godliness. Set an example of godliness. That's, and that's all on Monday. <laughs> Devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Keep using your gift. Don't neglect it. So just keep on practicing these things. Steady plotting day after day. Don't neglect them. Don't deviate from them. He says, immerse yourself in them. Just be in them. Be devoted to them. Be um, committed to them. Be diligent in them. Keep in them so that your progress is evident to all, so that they are encouraged. you're encouraging people to grow in godliness. This doesn't only apply to pastors. We all want to influence others to grow by growing ourselves. We want to... To make progress in godliness, and although much of this progress is internal and not necessarily visible to others, it can't help but show up in our speech and conduct. So it's a good thing to ask, how are you progressing in growing in godliness? In Paul's last sentence in this section, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he says, Timothy, you must keep a close watch on yourself. 
Why? Because there are constant temptations to wander from godliness into sin and unbelief. We need to keep watch on our outward behaviors and and our inward desires and thoughts because we need to know that all of our outward behaviors come from our heart, from desires in our hearts. We may think that our hearts are pure, but if our speech and behaviors are not godly, they show that they're not pure. Sometimes we say things like this. Well, he does a lot of rotten things, but he's got a good heart. Not true. Not true. So we need to watch over our hearts. We need to check on the outside and check on the inside. Keep a close watch on your teaching, he says. We who teach must be sure that we are teaching what the Word of God says, not what we want it to say. We're always in danger of putting our own spin on what God's Word says or what the culture says it should say. Are we being faithful and diligent to do the hard work of getting the meaning that God put into his word? He inspired the biblical authors to write. So it's hard sometimes working your way through the scripture. We, we want easy access. We don't want to do the hard work of, of un, unearthing the meaning of, of what God's word says. And we need to, to work at it. So are you watching what you're doing with God's word? whether in what you receive in the teaching of it or what you're reading? Is your life being increasingly shaped by it? Are you making progress in obeying what you're learning? And Paul says to Timothy, persist in this, persist, persevere in this, continue in it, in keeping watch over yourself and your teaching. He needs to devote constant effort to watching his life and his teaching. It's it's hard when you're opposed for what you're doing, so... That makes it difficult, and you got your own sin to deal with, and weaknesses to persist in the Word of God is hard. But what is at stake? What's at stake in persisting or not persisting and watching our lives and the teaching of God's Word? Paul says, by persisting in these, says Timothy will save both himself and his hearers. What does that mean? What he doesn't mean is that Timothy actually accomplishes his own salvation and salvation of his hearers as if they are saved by his own power and efforts. Paul has made it clear that God does the saving through Jesus Christ. He's, he said that God is the Savior of all people who believe in Christ back in, earlier in chapter 4. He said that Christ is the one mediator between God and man who was a ransom for us. And he, he said he, he came into the world to save sinners. So clearly God saves us through faith in Jesus Christ. We do not save ourselves or others by our efforts. Then why does Paul say that by persisting in God's word and keeping a close watch on himself, Timothy will save both himself and his hearers? Because although it is God alone who saves through Christ, he saves through faith. And true saving faith persists, perseveres, in God's word. Saving faith is sustained through God's word. It continues to hold fast to God's word. And it bears fruit in overcoming sin and growing in godliness. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Really? I'm working out my own salvation? What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, he says, For God is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So because God is at work in you, you work out your own salvation. It's God working in you. It's his work, but I work at the same time. The scriptures teach that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not as a result of our good works or religious efforts. 
Salvation is a, is a gift. It's a result of Christ's work for us, his death and on the cross and resurrection. It's a free gift. We can only receive it. We can't earn it. We cannot deserve it. But sometimes this is taught in such a way that, hey, you check in once, you, you believe, you make a profession, you make a decision for Christ, and you're good to go. Don't ever question it, even if there's no fruit in your life, even though there's no evidence that Christ is in your life. But what we see in this text is that saving faith continues or persists in God's word. If you have a, a Bible or a phone with a Bible, um, track with me on some verses that are not on the screen. Hebrews 3.14 Hebrews 3.14. The writer says, For we have come to share in Christ. How do we know if we've come to share in Christ? If indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. So we, we know that we have a share in Christ now. If in the future we... Hold fast our confidence in Christ to the end. How do, I, how do I know that I'm in Christ now? If to the end I hold fast my confession in Christ. I can't see that, but that's, that's how I know I'm in Christ now, if I hold fast to the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. In this, Paul is saying, I'm reminding you of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. How do I know if I'm being saved? By the gospel, through the gospel. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, saving faith in Christ is not just, hey, I acknowledge the fact. Uh, I, I tip my hat to Jesus. I just say, yeah, I believe that, and then I go on. It's holding fast to the gospel, holding fast to the word of God. It perseveres in the word of God. So we persist in teaching and hearing God's word because it fuels our faith. And we keep watch on our lives to keep alert to dangerous things, signs of unbelief. But is it enough for us to hear teaching once a week, if that, to persist in, in saving faith? Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews, so back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what the writer is saying is he's warning that there could be in any one of us an evil, unbelieving heart. Have you ever struggled with an evil, unbelieving heart? Yes, we all have. So what do we do with that? That if we allow that to continue, we could fall away from the living God. How do we prevent that? He says, by exhorting one another every day. Exhorting one another to trust in Christ and to live for him, to obey him. God works through our exhorting one another so that we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
So salvation is a community effort. I need you, you need me. How do we do that? I mean, every day? That tells me like in one day my heart can get pretty hard. Hardening can set in in one day. So we need to find ways where we're constantly encouraging one another in the faith. This isn't a game. That's what's at stake. It isn't, when people fall into flagrant sin, or even semi-flagrant sin, or reject God altogether, it isn't because they were going along fine until suddenly out of nowhere they decide, I I think I've enjoyed living for God, but today I think I'm going to get in some major sin. Today's a good day to have a big sin fest. You don't go from being walking with God to that in, in a short period of time. It's a process. Let's see, what should I do? Or I think today is the day I will fall away from God. No, we don't do that. Falling into big sin or rejecting God always involves a process. A little hardening here, a little unbelief there. Repentance grows weak and disappears until the heart is hard and you turn your back on God. You say, but how do I know that I will be able to persevere enough not to fall away? How do I not do that? I mean, if that's so dangerous, how do I not do that? Well, if it's up to us, if it's up to our efforts, even the, even the efforts of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we would all fall away. That's what sin does. Sin is constantly trying to blow God out of the water and to cut you off from God. Sin doesn't change because you're a Christian. It's, it seeks to do that. It seeks, it seeks and destroys. That's the nature of it. So, thank God... He upholds us so that we won't fall away. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Where Peter writes, By God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power you are being guarded, you are being kept, you are being protected through faith for full and final salvation. Your faith is marked, powered by God. Yeah, you must persevere. You must persevere in faith, but God empowers your faith, and he does this through his word. Your faith is hungry for his word. You've, you've got an appetite. It's, if, you're, if your appetite is absent, that's weird. You're not healthy. Something's wrong with your body when you're not hungry at all for anything. Or if you're continually eating junk food, then that's also stuffing your gut with stuff that's not going to sustain you. So what's messing up our appetites? It could be junk food. It can be uh, just not keeping our appetite healthy by feeding on God's word. Thank God that he sustains us. He, he does use his word. He uses our continual encouragement of one another by being together, by worshiping together, by serving together. He uses all these means to keep us in his grace. Join me as we pray. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Thank you, Father, that we can trust you. You are able to keep us from stumbling. Through your word, you're able to keep us blameless and make us blameless to stand before you in the final day. Thank you for giving us a mighty Savior, Christ, who understands our temptations. He's with us through your spirit. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we need. I pray, Father, that you would use these words of Paul's to help us to persist, to persevere in your word, to be praying for ourselves and one another that we'll continue in your word, that we'll do the hard work of getting the truth out of your word and living by it and loving it and feeding on it and thirsting after it and letting it cause us to make much of you in every detail of our lives. Father, may that be more and more the normal pattern of our lives. We recognize, Father, our sin is constantly available for our temptation to, to stumble and fall. And thank you, Father, that like we celebrate in taking the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ constantly renews us through faith in him. He constantly cleanses us again and again from our sins as we confess them and as we repent and as we turn to him and as we cling to his word again and again and again. Thank you, Father, that we can do that when we gather in big groups and small groups. Help us to be sustained in faith in Christ. In love for him, we ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for being